It is to guide us and protect us. And if we use the information that that dash gives us, it keeps the car functioning as it should be functioning. If we ignore it, we're going to encounter problems down the road. And I think we'd all do well to have a dashboard for our spiritual lives, a spiritual life dashboard that would help us evaluate the health of our spiritual journey, that would warn us of any potential problems. And so as I studied these, um, pass- the passage this week, Second uh, Corinthians 5 and 6, I'm sure you know there was a lot of material in these two chapters. And trying to figure out how do we pull all this information together in a short lecture uh, is challenging. But as I looked through these two chapters, what stood out to me and what I, I started to see were some gauges that we could put on our spiritual dashboard. And so things that would help us evaluate our journey. And so tonight, from these two chapters, I want to point out seven things that we can put on our spiritual life dashboard. Seven things that we should regularly check. Seven things that will tell us how we're doing spiritually. And they'll warn us of a potential problem. So the first thing on the dashboard is the perspective gauge. Paul talks about perspective in 2 Corinthians 4, 16-5-5. And I go back, I know we didn't study chapter 4 this week, but I felt like the end of last week's lesson really fits into this week's lesson. Because at the end of chapter 4, Paul reminds us that even though our bodies are decaying, even though we're going through hard times, we don't lose hope. Because of Christ's resurrection, we know that we one day are going to be resurrected. And so, life on this earth is only temporary. We have eternal life that's going to continue once this life is done, so we don't lose heart. And so Paul points out two perspectives. And one is the eternal, uh, is the temporal perspective. In chapter 4, verse 18, he says, looking at the things which are seen, the temporal things, things right here and now. That's the temporal perspective. You're focused on what's right in front of you. And if we focus on what's right here, if we focus on our health, our bodies, our wealth, when those things change and they dwindle and they sag as we get older, um, you, you can lose heart when those things are taken away or not as good as they once were. That's the temporal perspective. But Paul also talks about the eternal perspective, looking at the things which are not seen, the eternal things. And this perspective focuses on eternity, those things that we can't see right now, but we know they're coming by faith. So Paul has an eternal perspective, and as a result, he doesn't lose hope no matter how hard it gets on this earth, no matter how hard his life got. He didn't lose hope because he had an eternal perspective. And in chapter 5, he reminds us that our earthly bodies are tense. They're temporary. He talks about that we groan right now. In verse 2 of chapter 5, he talks about in this house, we groan. In this body, we groan. We long to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, 
meaning our new heavenly bodies, one day we are going to receive new bodies when Christ returns. And Kelly talked about this in the book. There's different views on when we're going to get those new bodies. Uh, I believe the view of it'll happen when he returns. But we don't know what those bodies are going to look like. We just know they're going to be forever and they're going to be glorified bodies. They probably are not going to look like these. They're not going to wear out. But we can look forward to that one day happening. And so keep your focus on what's to come, not what's right now. Have an eternal perspective. So the first thing we should check on the spiritual life dashboard is the perspective gauge. Do you have an eternal perspective? Is your needle over here on the eternal perspective? Looking at things from an eternal viewpoint? Does this really matter in light of eternity? Or do you have a temporal perspective focused on this earth and what is happening right now? The second gauge is the ambition gauge. Chapters five, or chapter 5, verses 6 through 10 And he begins in verses 6 through 8, sharing his eternal perspective. He says, I would rather be home with the Lord and absent from this body. He walks by faith and not by sight. He is longing for that day when he's going to be with Jesus and he's going to be free of this body. And then in verse 9, he tells us what his ambition is in life. He says, therefore, in verse 9, we also have as our ambition, whether at home here on this earth or at home with Jesus or absent from this body, to be pleasing to him. That was his ambition. His ambition wasn't to build a following for himself. It wasn't to become a great speaker or a great teacher or a great writer who published all these books and letters. His ambition was simply to please God. And that word translated ambition here is from the Greek word that means to love what is honorable. And so our ambition in life should be to love and pursue those things that are honorable to God. Those things that please him. But we often make our ambition more about us than we do about him. And a good question to ask ourselves when we crawl in bed at night is, God, did I please you today? Did I please you with my words, with my actions, with my thoughts? And I'll be honest, I've been convicted this week and as I wrote this lecture and it just seems like, I mean, I I have definitely been convicted in every one of these gauges this week. But did we just ask him, you know, did we please him? And let me say this too. We can't please every person. And I can tell you as your women's ministry director, I cannot please every one of you in this room. And so for every one of you who want this, and you don't know why I don't do it, there's somebody over here that wants this, and somebody's going to be upset because they're not going to please you both. There's only one person that we need to go to bed at night knowing we've pleased. And that's where when I make the decisions about how to run this ministry, 
He's the one that I want to listen to more than all the different things going around. And so just understand that when I don't do what you say I, you think I should do, that, okay, I'm trying to please him, and I can't please every person. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So he is the only one that matters. And Paul reminds us in verse 10 that one day we are all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for what we've done. And again, you probably talked about this in your group. This is not a judgment seat for our sins. They've been dealt with. This is a time that we stand before the Lord and we give an account for what we've done on this earth, the things that we've done well, the things that we did not do. And he'll give eternal rewards to us for those things that we've done well that have pleased him. And, you know, some of the, uh, you read throughout the New Testament and Revelation about crowns that we'll receive. We don't know exactly what these rewards are, but we'll receive them. For the things that we didn't do well, the bad things, we're not going to receive anything. And those crowns, those rewards that we will get at this judgment seat, they're not for boasting. I'm not going to get there and, and say, Catherine, how many, how many rewards you got? Two? I got four. Okay, you know, we're not going to do that. That what we're going to, it's not for us, those crowns, it tells us in Revelation that we're going to th- put them at his feet, at the throne. It's a way of worshiping. It's not for boasting and bragging and comparing. It's mainly wanting to please him. And I don't want to stand before that judgment seat that day and disappoint him. And I know I will. I know there are things that I will disappoint him. But I don't want to hear him say, Cricket, why did you do that? that year why didn't you do that why didn't you use that gift that I gave you and you just sat on it why didn't you use that talent that I gave you you never used it for my kingdom I don't want to hear that what I want to hear is cricket it wasn't perfect but I'm pleased and that should be our ambition that was Paul's ambition I want to please him That should be our ambition. So as you look at the ambition gauge on your spiritual dashboard, what's it telling you? Is your ambition to please God? Is your needle over here pleasing God? Or is it like here where I'm going to please other people? Maybe it's all the way over here. My ambition is to please myself. What is your ambition gauge telling you? What is your ambition in life? What are you pursuing wholeheartedly? What consumes you? Are you pursuing and loving those things that are honorable to God and pleasing to God? Are you pursuing those things that are pleasing to you? And is there something that you need to stop doing or start doing in order to please God? So we've looked at two gauges on the spiritual life dashboard, the perspective gauge and the ambition gauge. The third gauge is the motivation gauge. And Paul talks about this in chapter 5, verses 11 to 15. In verses 12 to 13, he tells the Corinthians that everything he does is for their spiritual growth or it's for God. 
It's not for him. It's for them or for God. And in verse 14, he reveals his motivation. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. And I actually like the NIV translation here better. It says, the Christ's love compels us. And that Greek word used here for control or compel indicates being moved to action. He is moved to action by the love of Christ. Christ's love for him. What moves you to take action? What moves you to serve the Lord? You know, Paul suffered. He preached the gospel. He developed churches. He taught great sermons. Why? His motivation was because Christ loved him. And Jesus loves us so much He died for us on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. And so that natural response should be, Lord, thank you for loving me. I want to serve you as a way of showing my love for you. That should be our natural response. That was Paul's response. So what does the motivation gauge on your spiritual dashboard tell you about your motivation? Are you motivated by Christ's love for you? Are you motivated by something else? Is your motivation to get approval from other people? You need that approval? Is your motivation to do something to feel good about yourself and hear the praise of others? Is our motivation to build a name for ourselves? Is it because we feel guilty if we don't do something? That's the motivation, because if I don't, I'm going to feel bad. Or is your motivation because you see how much he loves you, and as a result, you love him and you want to serve him? That should be our motivation. That was Paul's. The fourth gauge on our spiritual life dashboard is the lifestyle gauge. Chapter 5, verse 17. Verse 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. You know, if you put your faith in Christ uh, to pay the penalty for your sins, you are a new creature. Your old self is still there. You've still got that sin nature that's kicking away. But you now have the Holy Spirit living in you to empower you to defeat that sin nature, to say, no, I'm not going to do that anymore. You have a new life. You have a new power within you through the Holy Spirit. So live in a way that reflects this new life in Christ. So what does your application gauge tell you about your lifestyle? What does your lifestyle gauge indicate? Are you Christ-like or are you like the world? Would neighbors, co-workers, family members know that you're a Christian by your lifestyle, by your words, by your actions? And do they see something in you that they know is different and they want? Is there something they see in you and it draws them to Christ? 
Do they know just by being around you that you're a Christian? I, I've shared this with y'all before in Heart to Heart. When I was a junior in college and I finally surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, those first two and a half years I was not walking with the Lord. And, I, and my roommate my junior year, when I told her I was a Christian, she laughed and said, there is no way you're a Christian. Because my lifestyle did not line up with what a Christian's lifestyle should look like. And that was a wake-up call for me. A fifth gauge on the spiritual life dashboard is the mission gauge. Chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. In verse 18, Paul tells us that God reconciled us to himself through Christ, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But we don't just... In verse 19, we're given a mission. God has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. He reconciled us to himself through Christ. But then he gave us a mission. And he sent us out to reconcile other people to Christ. To be his ambassador. So as you look at the mission gauge on your spiritual life dashboard, what is it telling you about your mission and the ministry of reconciliation? Are you an ambassador for Christ? Or are you on a mission of your own? Are you representing him well as his ambassador? I wasn't in college at all. Do we point others to Jesus? Are we even thinking about pointing people to Jesus? And I confess, that is not the first thing on my mind in the morning. If your mission gauge is showing you that you're off track, what is one thing that you can do to be more intentional about pointing people to Jesus Christ? The sixth gauge on the spiritual life dashboard is the commitment gauge. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. In the first five chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul had, has been defending his life and ministry, and his enemies at Corinth had accused him of wrong methods and motives. And so here in chapter 6, he gives examples of, to demonstrate his commitment to the Corinthians and his commitment to Christ. And so first he pleads with the Corinthians in verse 1, we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Most of the Corinthians were saved, but they weren't growing in Christ. They, they were just stagnant in their growth. Or they were, they were being pulled away by these false teachers. They had accepted the gift of grace of, the, of what Christ did, but they... They just were staying put. They weren't growing. Others heard God's grace, but they refused it because they believed that the only way that they could earn salvation was through works. And they were just pushing aside the grace of God. In either case, they were not allowing God's grace to do its work in their lives. They were taking it in vain. It was being taken in vain. 
And so in verses 3 through 10, he then lists the different situations he'd endured in order to remain faithful to Christ and to remain faithful to his calling to preach the gospel. He was willing to suffer for Christ, and he did, over and over. And you read all the things he put in there. All through this book, you'll read his sufferings. And then in verse 4, he reminds them that he is a servant of God. He was committed to serving Christ no matter how hard it got. He didn't want to do anything that would discredit God or the gospel or the ministry. That's commitment. He wanted to serve God wholeheartedly, and he did. So what does the commitment gauge on your spiritual dashboard tell you about your spiritual health in this area? Are we serving the living God? Are we, is our little needle pointed over here? Are we serving the living God? Or are we serving an idol? Something else, someone else? What are we committed to? Are we discrediting the ministry in any way? And are we committed to hanging in there and serving him even when the going gets tough? And then we come to the last gauge on our spiritual life dashboard, the partnership gauge. Chapter 6, verses 14 to 18. And in verse 14, Paul exhorts them, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And he goes on, What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And the point he's making here is that a believer has no common spiritual ground with an unbeliever. I didn't say common ground because you do have common grounds with non-believers. You love sports or you love to shop or you love sewing. But a non-believer and a believer don't have any common spiritual ground. Faith has nothing in common with unbelief. The believer and the unbeliever have different philosophies of life, different worldviews. They look to opposing sources for guidance. The, the believer looks to the Bible for truth and guidance. The non-believer looks to the world, TV, Hollywood, or other religions for their truth. So partnering with a non-believer is going to cause difficulties because you're going in two different directions. You're, you're, you're not even listening to the same guidance. And so you're going to just get further and further apart. And he goes on to remind them that we are the temple of the living God in verse 16. The Holy Spirit lives in us. And as the temple of God, we can't join forces and beliefs with people who oppose those very beliefs. However, he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. He's not saying stay away from unbelievers because Jesus didn't stay away from unbelievers. He hung out with them. You know, how are we ever going to carry out the ministry of reconciliation? How are we ever going to share Christ with somebody if we're never around somebody who doesn't know the Lord. 
That's not what he's saying. What he's warning against here is a partnership between a believer and a non-believer, a binding relationship. Because that partnership would be between two people going in two different directions, listening to differing guidance, following a different set of standards. This person's following the world's standards. It's okay to do it. The Bible doesn't relate anymore. Everybody does this. Do it. And here are the believers saying, no, the Bible's still true today. It's not going to work. And I, I think that this pertains to dating, marriage, business partnerships, any place where there is a binding relationship. Um, I've seen what happens when a believer gets into a close partnership with a non-believer. I've seen friends dating somebody who's a non-believer, thinking, you know, I'm just dating them. I'm not marrying the guy. What? That's not going to hurt. And we would start to see her getting pulled more to his way of thinking and to where she finally just walked away from the Lord. I've seen that happen. We always think we're going to be the strong one that brings them to Christ. But what we usually see is the opposite, where I think sometimes we're willing to kind of compromise a little bit to try to bring them, and they won't budge. But let me also say, if you have married an unbeliever and you're in a marriage with a non-believing husband, stay. He's not saying, like, Paul actually talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And he says, if you are married to a non-believing spouse, and that spouse is willing to stay in that marriage, you stay. Because you might be the very one that will be the tool that God uses to bring that spouse to Christ. So don't just get up from here and leave because you're married to a non-believer. Uh, I think of Gail. I mean, your situation where you saw your husband come to Christ at the very end. Um, God can use us but his design for us is to be equally yoked, partnered with someone who shares the same love for Christ that we have. So what does your partnership gauge tell you? Are you equally yoked? Are you unequally yoked somewhere? Have you put yourself in a binding relationship with somebody who doesn't believe in Christ and doesn't love him? If it's a marriage, stay. If it's a business partnership, you really need to think long and hard. How is that partner impacting my spiritual way of thinking? Because if it's... I just think you really need to think hard about it. Uh, if it's hurting your walk with God, I don't think that's where God wants us. If you're thinking about entering into a binding partnership or relationship with a non-believer, consider Paul's words here, don't. And I've counseled many a young woman that wanted to marry a non-believer. And some have listened to Paul's words and others have said, I don't care, I'm marrying the guy. And then ended up being miserable. You know, there have been non-Christian guys that um, 
I've been friends with, especially when I worked in the hospital, and I've shared a little with y'all before too, that, you know, there were several guys that, you know, you, you work so closely in the operating room, and you kind of are a team, and you start kind of laughing, and you go out to dinner, and there are some guys that I was attracted to, and I knew, though, that when I couldn't go out with them. I wanted to, but I knew it wasn't wise, and I would have to explain to them why, and they respected my my view and my belief and didn't pressure me. But I knew if I did, I would be walking down a dangerous road. Have friendships with non-believers. That's important. But be careful when you're considering a binding relationship, a close relationship that might bring you into something dangerous. So just like our car has a dashboard with all kinds of gauges to help us track the health of our car, so we need a spiritual life dashboard to help us evaluate how we're doing spiritually. And I encourage you to go home this week and look at these seven gauges. I, I did it this morning. I sat down in my quiet time and I started going through these gauges. And, you know, I have got some work to do. But see what these gauges are showing you about your spiritual walk. And so just to summarize these gauges, you know, our perspective. Um, is it eternal or temporal? Our ambition, is it to please God or to please somebody else? Is our motivation Christ's love for us or selfish motives? Our lifestyle, is it Christ-like or is it like the world? Our mission, are we an ambassador for Christ? Are we on a mission of our own? Our commitment, are we serving the living God or are we serving an idol or someone else? And our partnerships, be equally yoked. Are we equally yoked or unequally yoked? Don't ignore the warning lights or the gauges on that dashboard that indicate that we need to give attention to an area in our lives. Pay attention to these gauges. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for using your word in our lives. Thank you for using it in my life this week to convict me and show me things that I needed to take in for a tune-up. And uh, Father, I pray that we not walk away from this and go, yeah, I'll follow it away. Look at it someday. I pray we'd look at these things this week. That we ask you to search our hearts, Father, and show us where we need to really stop and give some attention. And I pray, Lord, not one woman in this room would be willing and satisfied with just settling for status quo. That we not take your grace in vain, but that we would press on, that we would move on in our relationship with you. Lord, give us a, a deeper love for you. Draw us closer. And thank you for using your word to do that. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're